Well, I'm excited to be back in Acts chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be, well, back in Acts, we're starting in chapter 18. And uh, we'll be taking the first portion of the chapter, the first 17 verses. Uh, I think the, the break in the NIV is a little unfortunate, but as we look at this, what we're seeing is uh, the continuation and really the, uh, just about the finish of Paul's second missionary journey. So as he is bringing this together, uh, we hear this text, uh, bear in mind he has gone on his first missionary journey, a pastoral visit, then he went, went uh, continued into a missionary setting. He is now um, in finishing up this second missionary journey. He's gone out to more churches and more areas. He's run into some difficulties, and as he ran into those difficulties, God spread the gospel further. And so as he pushed Paul to a new location, that's where we pick up today. So Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Father, as we look at your word here today, help us to do more than look. Help us not to be mere hearers, but to be doers also. Father, teach us to heed what you have given us in your word. Lord, we live in a difficult time. I'm not sure there's such a thing as a time that isn't difficult. 
And we recognize that Jesus said that in this world we'll have trouble. Help us today as we read this passage, as we interact with your Holy Spirit this morning, to recognize and take heart because He has overcome the world. Speak to us, move in us, move through us. Be glorified today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever struggled with anxiety, fear, depression? Ever felt like no matter where you go or what you do, you run into obstacles and opposition? Well, I have a hunch that most of us here are saying yes. Even the strongest Christians have real emotions that can feel overwhelming at times. Even Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers who turned England upside down with the gospel in the 19th century, had constant struggles with depression. I would be hard-pressed to say anybody knew the Lord better than C.H. Spurgeon. And he still struggled with depression and what he called an overwhelming darkness. Knowing the real spiritual attacks that we're under, recognizing that those spiritual attacks often even manifest themselves in present material opposition or persecution, this shouldn't be surprising to us at all. It makes sense. In Acts chapter 18, Paul arrives alone at Corinth. Corinth is a booming, rough, dirty, prosperous, immoral city. And God shows him and us that God is in control and His children are in His hands. As we work through this text today, I want you to see this core reality. Our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. I'm going to say that once more. I want to make sure it sinks in. Our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. Now, I think this is a particularly difficult thing for us to deal with. I think this is something that we can know and we can say, but it's really hard to get it deep in. So let's all say it together. Say it with me. Our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. The, the whole passage here really rises and falls on verses 9 through 11. Everything leads up to that and follows through from that. So as we look at this today, bear that in mind. If you have a, a red letter, your, uh, your letters there in verses 9 through 11 are probably in red. They're the editors, that's, that's not inspired, that red coloring, but the editors, uh, at least of the New International Version and of some others, uh, see this vision that Paul is having as Christ himself speaking. In any case, it's the Lord speaking, whether it's the person of Jesus Christ, which I think is entirely likely, the person of the Holy Spirit, or the person of God the Father himself. What we see in the reality of this is that it is God's word to Paul, God's specific message to him for his moment, for his situation. And we can all learn from it. Well, as we see this, Corinth is a city that was at this time already an ancient city. 
By the time the Romans took over, Corinth was long established as a prosperous port city. Money flowed through Corinth. At one point it had been destroyed, and now by this time it's rebuilt. And it took very little time for it to once again become prosperous, populated, and wicked. When you look at Corinth, you might keep in your mind the idea of of the naked city, New York. It's a hub. There is industry, there's trade, travelers come through here, and every imaginable sin is flowing through the streets of Corinth. Now there is a synagogue there, so there's a gathering, there's a significant number of Jews in this Greek city. And as Corinth houses this synagogue, other other religions are prevalent, they are prominent, and the Jews have still their, their status of being accepted as a, if you will, a world religion, as we might call it today, according to the Roman government. Now, Paul goes there. He gets, he's left Athens because of, uh, of this uh, just a pressing on as he's going forward. He had some success in Athens, perhaps not the success that he had hoped for, as the, the intellectual bias and the religious complacency and the spiritual laziness became kind of an issue. So he moves on to Corinth, but he goes by himself. And he leaves his comrades behind. Paul arrives there, and he meets a Jew named Aquila. Now this is interesting to me, and maybe it will be interesting to you. If not, bear with me, because I think it's significant. When the New Testament, particularly, particularly Luke, as he is writing the Act of the Apostles, he's sharing this history with us, when he encounters a believing Jew, one who has become a disciple of Christ, he almost always clearly calls that out. That this Jew is a believer, a follower of the way, a believer in Christ, a disciple, a brother. He doesn't do that with Aquila. And yet at the same time, when we have a Jew who is not a believer, who then converts and becomes a believer, receives Jesus Christ, and follows the way, Luke virtually always points that out as a meaningful and powerful story. With Aquila, we get neither. I find that interesting. Paul connects with Aquila, and it doesn't say that he connects with him because of his faith in Christ. He finds a believer, a believing Jew named Aquila. No, this is somebody who's just recently moved to the city. He's from Pontus originally, but he had been kicked out of Italy because the Jews were... were Banned, they'd been uh, required to move out to leave Italy by the the uh, Caesar at the time, Claudius, and his wife Aquila is with him. But what seems to bond them together, what draws Paul to them, is that they share an occupation. They're tent makers. Paul is a tent maker, so Paul connects with them. He actually stays with them, lives with them, works with them in what appears to be sort of a day worker situation. He's working for room and board. 
So while Paul is a prominent scholar, he is a prominent preacher of the gospel and one of the leaders of the church, here he humbles himself to be a tradesman working for room and board. As the As the story goes on, we'll see Priscilla and Aquila follow Paul. They clearly are disciples of Christ later, as they will will see next week, when they explain the gospel more clearly to the prominent preacher, Apollos. They will become partners with Paul that get mentioned in his letters. So clearly they follow Christ, whether that happened before or after It's hard to tell, but it seems to me, since Paul is in the initial stages of the church expanding, it seems unlikely that they would be coming from Italy, where they had not gone and planted churches yet, already believing in Christ. So Paul appears to be, and this is my best understanding, take it for what it's worth, appears to be going connecting and staying with unbelieving Jews, partnering with them in the work while he reasons with them from the Scriptures about the Gospel. It appears that while he is staying with them, they receive Christ. Interesting. We'll see how this might relate as we go along here. In this wicked town, imagine this, all of the debauchery that's going on. You can imagine how it feels to be standing for Christ when everyone around you is pursuing wickedness. And that is the way. It's the law of the land. Sexual morality is rampant. Godliness is absolutely absent. You can feel all alone, particularly when your partners are not there. And you are, in many ways, literally alone. In fact, when his partners, Timothy and Silas, show up, and presumably Luke as well, when when they show up, now he commits himself full-time. He is more dedicated and occupied with the Word after than he was before. Even in the midst of this, he runs into the difficulties in the synagogue that he runs into elsewhere. Hard-hearted Jews among those who also believe, believing Jews who are open-hearted, believing Gentiles. And he does what he does elsewhere in talking to the hard-hearted, stubborn Jews. He says, "I'm, I'm done with you. Essentially washing his hands of them. He shakes out his clothes here symbolic of shaking the dust off, similar to shaking the dust off of his shoes, off of his feet. He's telling them, basically, I consider you heathen Gentiles, and I don't want the dust of your life on me. I am innocent of your blood. Your blood's on your own heads. You've heard the gospel. What you do with it is now up to you. I will go to the Gentiles. It's not a turning of the ministry where now he focuses exclusively on the Gentiles. He continues the pattern of going to the synagogue. But here in Corinth, I'm done with you. So he goes next door. And it does not appear that he goes to live next door. 
He doesn't go to live with Titius Justus. Instead, he goes and gathers next to the synagogue, as close to the synagogue as you could be. Perhaps symbolically telling them, look, I want to be with you, but you won't have it. I want you to know Christ, but you won't receive Him. So I'm going to stand as close as I can. Maybe you'll hear it. Maybe you won't. But Titius Justus then allows him to preach the gospel, not in the synagogue, not in the gathering of the Jews, but in a house. We do whatever we can to reason with others. I have to imagine that whether Paul felt overwhelmed at this point, maybe he did. Or whether God knew that he would, and God is preemptively giving him this vision. As God speaks to him, he says, listen, Paul, don't be afraid. Can you imagine why he might be afraid? Those who should receive you reject you. You're surrounded by those who have no reason in themselves. The flesh is strong. You feel like you're all alone. This ministry isn't going anywhere. Well, as it turns out, he has great success here. But even in the success, and I can testify to this, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I, I can't evaluate my own preaching on Sunday afternoon and often on Monday morning. My wife can tell you that. Because it's always horrible. Oh my goodness, this is the worst it's ever been. It's terrible. This isn't going anywhere. It's exhausting. Later, a little more rational thought can, can creep in, but there is a spiritual weightlifting that goes on in the preaching of the gospel. And, and i got to tell you, I, I look around and I see people who have felt that exhaustion as you have ministered to others. And you've waded into their pain to share truth with them. And it's heavy. And the Spirit carries you, but it can sure wear you out. Jeremiah went through that. They called him the weeping prophet because he just had so much bad news to share. Everybody saw him, oh, here comes Jeremiah again. It's exhausting. Elijah felt that right after the greatest victory you could imagine in 1 Kings. He, he is confronting the prophets of Baal in the presence of Ahab. 400 plus prophets of Baal. And, and, and you know the story. They have this big confrontation. We're going to have a, a sacrifice on this altar, have a sacrifice on that altar. You talk to your God, I'll talk to my God, and we'll see who brings down fire. And they go around making all their big drama, trying to get Baal to light the fire. It's pretty hard to get a stone-dead idol to light a fire. Elijah says, okay, my turn. Let's soak this sucker down. With whatever water they had, in the middle of a drought, they soak the sacrifice and the altar and fill a trench around it with water. And he says, okay, Lord. And God shows up. And the fire from heaven comes down, consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water in the trench. And he has all the prophets of Baal executed. Wow! power of God, right? Next thing we see, next scene, he's running from Queen Jezebel 
afraid for his life, depressed and despairing, feeling like he's all alone in the world and there's nobody else preaching the gospel, nobody else talking about the Lord. Oh, Lord, I've been filled with zeal for you and this is what I get. God speaks to him in the stillness. He sends big signs and nothing. And then a little sign. Here's the voice of the Lord. And he still says, Lord, I'm all alone. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And God says, hey, listen, you don't even know what I'm doing. I've got 7,000 left here who have not bowed the knee. I've got my people. Your life is in my hands. You see, this overwhelming feeling can get us. Well, as we see this going on with Paul, he takes this to heart. As I said, the whole passage rises and falls on verses 9 to 11. Paul never forgets this truth, not only here in Corinth, but as a general principle of his life and the life of every follower of Christ. My life, my work, my everything is in God's hands. That's where Paul hangs his hat. Do you want to find hope and peace in Christ? You need to hang your hat there too. Our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. Now, I'm a little behind because I took a little bit of time to talk about that, so let's, let's pick up and start filling in some blanks here. As children of God in Christ, we have the same privileges that Israel had, that Paul had, because God deals with His people personally, individually, and collectively, and He watches out for His own. This is a consistent theme. Here are some things that we see right here in this passage. As children of God in Christ, we can count on first the Lord's presence. The Lord's presence. As we began our our time today, we started out with Psalm 23. A psalm that David writes about being able to rest in the presence of the Lord as the Good Shepherd leading, guiding, providing, watching over, protecting, just being with Him. There's one thing that strikes me about David's openness in life. David is a man full of sin and yet called a man after God's own heart. How does that happen? By living openly before God. Standing in His presence because He's standing on His promises. What does it mean to have the Lord's presence? For the Lord to be with you. Notice in verse 9, He says, Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you at the beginning of verse 10. Well, there are two things we need to recognize about this presence of God, about God being with us. One is proximity. Proximity. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 139, probably familiar, but go to the middle of your Bible and find Psalm 139, and we'll see in this proximity that God is near. God is with us and that He is near us. He is present with us. We're going to look at the first 12 verses here. Psalm 139, David writes, You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. 
You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I want to keep reading the whole psalm, but I'm going to stop. Because what we need to see here is David is both comforted and humbled by the presence of God. There's no place we can go where God is not proximal, not near to us, present with us. You jump in a rocket and go to the moon, God's already there. He's everywhere. So His nearness in His presence is with us. But more than that, when we recognize the Lord's uh, presence, it's not just proximity, it's also promotion. Notice, when I'm a believer, God is on my side. Turn to Psalm 118, just back a few pages there. If your Bible's like mine, the pages are real thin, so they go fast. 118, I'd encourage you for your homework to read the whole psalm. It's terrific. But we're going to focus in primarily on verse 6. The psalmist writes, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It's not just that God is present, but God is with me in that He is for me. He is on my side. This was the promise He made to Israel regularly. I will be with you. And when they sinned against Him, and He said, don't go up into that battle, because I will not be with you. And Moses, even when he called them to move on, Moses said, Lord, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. We want you. We don't need more land. We don't need more blessings. We need your presence. We need you to be on our side with us. Proximal. Promoting us. Now listen. Paul's in a tough situation. We live in a tough world. We may not always feel the Lord's presence in the moment. Remember that our hope and our peace rest on God's promises, not our perceptions. God has called us, as we talked about last week, to a reasonable faith to recognize that He has a track record that is worthy of trust. 
That's why so much of the Old Testament is telling us, recounting for us what God does for His people, what He has done for His people. At the same time, He is telling us what He will do for His people. We can trust His promises when we don't feel His presence. He is still with us. He is still for us. Why would the one who gave His only begotten Son to die for us while we were still sinners withhold from us anything that we should have? If He withholds it, what does that tell you? You shouldn't have it. Right? I want my kids to be happy. I want them to have wonderful toys. Gabriel likes wonderful toys. But when my little child finds a shiny razor blade and wants to play with it, I don't want them to have it. What a terrible parent. You don't want your child to have fun with that beautiful shiny razor blade. No, I'm not stupid. And I don't want harm to come to my child. If I withhold something, it's because it's bad for them or it doesn't fit the plans that we have. The Lord's presence is shown to us in proximity and promotion Notice also that as children of God in Christ, we can count on the Lord's protection. We can count on the Lord's protection. We're going to stay in Psalms. In fact, while I, I really have a number of things that I would like to show you in the New Testament, today we're going to stay primarily in the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 25. You may be familiar with this as a song that we sing here pretty regularly. Uh, my hope is you. David writes in Psalm 25, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you, all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. And he goes on to praise the Lord for being on his side and protecting him. Turn to to Psalm 27. Again, speaking of God's protection, David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Such powerful praise of the Lord's protection for His people. Turn the page again. Take a look at Psalm 37. We can see this just flowing through the Psalms. We can see it flowing through the history of Israel, through the, uh, through the challenges and exhortations of the prophets. God protects His people. Psalm 37, 
Verse 1, David writes, Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass they will soon wither, like the green plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked, wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. God will avenge His people. He will protect His people. He will watch over His people. I want to point out two aspects of the Lord's protection today. First, prevention. Notice back in Acts. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. We see God's prevention. God prevents every attack He does not intend to use. God prevents every attack He does not intend to use. So as we see this, notice that right after this this passage where the Lord says, no one's going to attack and harm you, like 10 minutes later, they attack. Not really, he's been there a year and a half, but during the time of Gallio as proconsul, the Jews rise up in a united attack on Paul. You know what they don't do? They don't harm him. That's the second aspect, preservation. While God prevents every attack he does not intend to use, his preservation protection for us is that God preserves me through any attacks he does intend to use. Sometimes he lets the enemy attack so that he can use that attack to further his purposes. God preserves me through any attacks he does intend to use. Now, what happens when the Jews attack? They, they come and they bring him before Gallio, before the, the tribunal that's there. They take him to court. They think they're going to win a great victory as they come in, in force against him. The deck is stacked. Paul can't win. But before he even gets to speak in his own defense, he's ready to open his mouth, and before he does, the proconsul says, What are you doing? Get out of my courtroom. You're bringing things that have no business here. I will not be a judge over your religious squabbles, your disputes over words and names. Bring me a real crime. Now the Jews take their anger, their rage toward Paul, and they turn it on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. Presumably because Sosthenes is the one who said, hey, we're going to get him out of here. Let's go do this. Now they're ticked. You led us into this humiliation so that we look like idiots before the proconsul. They beat him in front of Gallio, right there in the courtroom, so to speak, and Gallio just turns away. He doesn't even care. God allowed the attack, but He preserved Paul in the midst of the attack and protected him from harm. 
God will often allow attacks in our lives, but preserve us in the midst of it. We might be overwhelmed, but He is not. Life is scary and we may not feel God's protection when we face dangers, toils, and snares. When that happens, we must remind ourselves that our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. As children of God in Christ, we can count on the Lord's presence, both in proximity and promotion. God is near and He is on my side. We can count on the Lord's protection, both in prevention and preservation. He prevents the attacks He doesn't intend to use. He preserves us through the attacks that He does intend to use. Thirdly, we see that as children of God in Christ, we can count on the Lord's provision. We can count on the Lord's provision. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Genesis chapter 22, we find the story of Abram, Abraham and Isaac. And you're familiar with it. The, the Lord calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. Not just his son, but the son of the promise. This is the th- son that was promised by God, born in their old age, and through Isaac his offspring would be reckoned and he would become the father of many nations. And God says, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac on an altar. How do you even process that? It seems contrary to anything that God has ever asked before. God hates that kind of thing, and yet God is telling him to do it. And what happens in the midst of this, the, 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 the kicker, the climax, is as he's about to sacrifice Isaac in submission and surrender to God, God stops him. And he provides a ram stuck over in the, in the thickness of the brush over here. And he sacrifices the lamb and said, and he, instead, and he names that place Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. The Lord provides. God provides for his people. We can count on God's provision in two ways in particular. First, we see it here in preparation. God prepares a provision for us. God places both people and events for His purposes. I think I have a typo in my thing, maybe. Uh, Brad, Brad went with the same typo I put in there. I apologize. God places both people and events for His purposes. We see here that Gallio was put in place so that God could use him to do His purposes. More than that, Aquila and Priscilla are there, present, Because Claudius kicked them out of Italy, they show up here in Corinth, they happen to be, they happen to be, coincidence, exactly the same occupation, the same career as Paul. They connect. Paul stays with them. Now he's got a place to live. He's got sustenance. More than that, he's able to communicate the gospel to them. He's able to reason with them. My speculation is that the reason we're not told of their conversion is because that's not the point of the story. That's just me. Take it for what it's worth. But as this proceeds, as it goes along, we see that both Gallio and the family of Aquila are put in place by God to carry out His own purpose. Which brings us to the second point. 
the Lord's provision shows up in presentation. He presents His provision to us. God carries out His plans even through unbelievers. God carries out His plans even through unbelievers. I didn't have you turn on the previous point to Genesis 50, but I want to draw your attention there and and invite you to do that homework and check it out. In Genesis 50, we come to the end of the story of Joseph. You remember the guy with the colorful coat gets sold into slavery by his brothers and everything goes wrong, but God keeps promoting him because God is with him. God protects him. He provides for him. He becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And in the midst of this famine, God gives him the wisdom to, uh, to save up so that many people are saved. And when his brothers, after their father dies, when his brothers are concerned that Joseph will turn on them and seek revenge... They're fearful. And in one of the most classic statements of Scripture in Genesis 50, 20 and 21, Joseph says, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. That I would be here in this place at this time to do this thing for the saving of many lives. God places both people and events for His purposes. And then He carries out His plans even through unbelievers. He carried His plans out through Pharaoh. Pharaoh promoted Him. Pharaoh put Him in place so that He could do His thing. God used the events of the famine. He used the unbelievers in His life. Potiphar promoted Him. The jailer promoted Him. God keeps using unbelievers. In fact, When Moses shows up 400 years later, God uses Pharaoh again in a different way. And Paul refers to this later in his letter to the Roman church in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, when he says that he quotes Exodus 9, happens to also be verse 16 and 17, and he says, Pharaoh I raised up specifically for my purposes. He raised Pharaoh up. He could have wiped him out, could have swept him off the earth, but he raised him up so that Pharaoh, in his rebellion against God, would give glory to God as God broke him. God uses even unbelievers to carry out his plans. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wicked, horrible people, wicked, horrible king. And yet, God judges his people through the wickedness of Babylon which he also judges. And in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar actually gets so humbled by God, I'll save you the story, check it out, Daniel chapter 4, that he ends up praising Yahweh. God carries out his plans even through unbelievers, even when he makes them believers. We could go on and on. We see so many of these stories Understand that there are are many times in our lives when it may seem like God has forgotten us. Say amen if you've ever felt that way. God has not. But if if we don't at some point feel that way, we're either dishonest or a little unusual. Because sometimes the circumstances can be so overwhelming that it feels like emotionally God's not even watching me. David felt that way. But he turned back and recognized my feelings aren't the point. The promises of God are. 
There are times when it seems like He's forgotten us. Or maybe that it feels so bad that things have gotten so dark that it feels like there's no hope. That's when we need to return to the truth that our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. Now, today, you may be struggling with your confidence as a Christian. Today, you may go through difficult times that make it hard for you to see how you can obey God. I can't go one more day. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so depressed. I'm I'm so despairing. I'm ready to give up. You might be like Elijah and even be on the brink of suicide. If that's you, Luke seems to have you in mind specifically as he records the events of Acts 18. Paul's journey is far from over. He's going to face many more uncertain times, much darker and heavier than this. But God's word to him in this moment is an extension, <clears throat> excuse me, is an extension of what God consistently reveals in scripture about his relationship with his people. Israel, the church, individuals, if you belong to God, this remains true for you. Isaiah expressed the idea to Israel in God's, mes- in God's message of both judgment and also faithful love for His chosen ones in our memory verse, Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah writes, as the Lord speaks, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We sang that earlier as the second verse of a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. When things are hard and life is swirling around you and you need a foundation to stand on, you find it in His Word. Our hope our peace, are not tied to our feelings. They rest on God's promises, not our perceptions. If you want peace and rest in Christ today, do what Paul did. First, surrender your all to Christ and find life by trusting in His death and resurrection in your place. If you've not done that, I would love to talk to you about it. I'd I'd love to lead you through that process of receiving Christ I want to introduce you to my best friend. If you have, then remember, remind yourself, and keep returning to the reality that our hope and peace rest on God's promises, not on our perceptions. Let's pray. Father, help us today as we, uh, as we seek to know You, to glorify You, to walk in You. Lord, help us to do more than just hear Your Word and nod our heads and sit through a sermon, sing a song. Father, help us to take hold of Your Word, that we would be doers and not hearers only. 
that we would take hold of your promises and choose to stand on them, to rest, not allowing our perceptions, our feelings to be our defining thoughts. We're going to still have them. We know this, Lord. And it's, it's so natural for us to ask you to take them from us. And that is our prayer. And yet, Lord, we know that very often it's not your will. It's your will for us to choose to stand in the midst of those feelings. To stand on the foundation of your word, your promise to be with us. To be present to protect us, to provide for us. Lord, show us every moment of every day how to stand on Your promises. These things we pray in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.